Hi, I'm Karen Derricades, and you're listening to We Make Media. Joining me today is Barbara Fister from Project Information Literacy. I've asked her to talk with me today about a recent report she co-authored with Allison Head and Margie McMillan titled Information Literacy in the Age of Algorithms. The report was published in January 2020 and examines how U.S. college students navigate a changed and challenged information landscape in the age of algorithms. Their experiences, concerns, and widespread skepticism where targeted ads are the norm and objective news coverage can get harder to tell from opinion. Recommendations for moving forward are provided as well as a brief reflection from a small group of prominent thinkers in education, libraries, computer science, and media studies convened to discuss the implications of this study's findings. Barbara is an author, blogger, librarian, and self-proclaimed curmudgeon at large, best known for her writing about libraries and the role they play in student learning. Hi, Barbara. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So let's start with some of the basics. What is an algorithm and and what do we think we know about algorithms? Um, An algorithm is really just a set of instructions. Um, You could say a recipe is an algorithm. It's a it's a list of steps you take to get to a particular end that you have in mind. The idea of an algorithm, the concept of an algorithm has kind of grown into a a bigger social issue these days because algorithms are being used in systems that we use all the time. They're being used in ways that we may not even be aware of it to um, make predictions and to nudge people's behavior in certain directions. So they're at work um, in a lot of ways. Many of the algorithms being used in the products that we use every day, like you know Facebook and Google and YouTube, are um, invisible to us. We don't know how they work. We don't know that they're working in the background necessarily. Um, so they're kind of a black box, and they can be very complex, um, even for the people who write those algorithms. So what they do is they take a set of data And they use this set of instructions, the algorithm, to try to um, get to some points that they want to get to, to solve a problem that they want to solve, uh, which may be selling lots of advertising, or it could be something else. The fact that even for those who code it themselves, eventually, you're saying it does things that that even the, the people that create it don't quite understand. Because some of these systems become so complex, and they've been built upon and built upon and tweaked and tweaked, and a lot of different people are working on them. Um, There are cases where I've read about people saying, I don't know how it got to this answer. It just does. (laughs) Um, And yeah, that's a little scary um, because they're very complex in some cases at least. And they also are being, uh, they're using other technologies. They're using artificial intelligence technologies and they're using machine learning. So they take the data And then these technologies learn from the data. They start to look for patterns and make predictions. And it's not always clear what's going on behind the scenes with that, uh, those processes as the algorithms go to work. Yeah, you talk about the concept of them making guesses. That's a little terrifying to imagine. How, how How are they making those guesses? How do they guess? Yeah, it's kind of a combination of the data itself, um, which is often missing things or it's incorrect. Um, so there, that's a problem right there. What, what is the, the data source? Where did it come from? What's missing from it? Um, what is it leaving out? There's an awful lot of human interaction that can't be reduced to data after all. So, um, so that's a concern. 
Um, and then kind of the decisions somebody is making about how to act on that data is also um, important. What questions are they asking? What assumptions are they making about whatever it is that they're working on? Uh, and so it can become very skewed, um, not necessarily intentionally by the, the authors of the algorithms, but they may just simply be, and in many cases are ignorant of the social issues that they're reducing to data and turning into something else. Right. I mean, we seem to have, because of the Cambridge uh, Analytica scandal, there seems to be some more common knowledge or, you know, there's always assumptions with that common knowledge um, that can be problematic, which is why I asked you to break it down. You know, some when we talk about media literacy, people are always like, do we need to start at the beginning? I mean, we know all this, because, but that's exactly yeah. why we need to start at the beginning, right? Because right. So we, we need to question what we think we know about, uh, you know, in our developing uh, knowledge about these systems. But um, Cambridge Analytica certainly brought, you know, highlighted a lot of things and there seems to be some colloquial knowledge or or understanding that um, we live in silos, that we are experiencing different realities, particularly in social media. I mean, that one highlighted uh, the situation in social media. But what other kinds of institutional tasks um, are being managed by algorithms uh, and data collection? Oh, so many. Um, financial systems are being run that way. So, you know, things that are happening at lightning speed with money um, is being decided by algorithms in many cases. And that, that was a factor, actually, in the 2008 crash. Kind of like what we've just been talking about, about these algorithms being opaque and so complex, people don't even know how to interpret what's going on with them. Um, this happened with the financial systems in 2008. People were totally astonished when the formulas that they'd been using to move money around and to create new kinds of financial products, they had no idea exactly what was going on and they, things were being traded really quickly and so crashes can happen. So a really interesting book came out in the last couple of months uh, by a guy named um, Tim Huang, Subprime, Subprime Attention Crisis, where he likens what's going on with data and algorithms right now in the social media sphere to um, what happened in 2008 with our financial systems, saying advertising is being traded at high speeds in opaque ways that nobody quite can understand when it's going on. And so ads turn up in places where the person placing the ad doesn't really want it or is astonished by because these are opaque ad auctions happening in the background that are all automated. And so a lot of the predictions and the... Um, the kind of trying to personalize things is going through this system that nobody quite understands. And he argues it actually doesn't work and that we're in for a, another kind of crash, um, one where the whole financial system underpinning the internet as we know it today and which influences our lives in so many ways could really come crashing down if people trying to advertise products discover that the advertising methods they're using, which promise this great targeting and this great ability to nudge people and influence people, is just snake oil. Um, that's his, his take on it. And I find that kind of persuasive. There's, there's sort of a continuum of opinion about this. On the one hand, people like Shoshana Zuboff, who um, wrote The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, big tome explaining all of this from an economic perspective, 
she seems to feel this works all too well and is really scary because people can control you if they know all about you and then they can predict how you'll respond to things and then they can actually force you to do things against your will. So she sees this as a big, a big problem for, for human freedom. On the other hand, you get people like Tim Huang who said, well, actually, you know, we've kind of looked at how these ad systems work and they don't. <laughs> so don't worry about being persuaded by them because they, they don't function very well. They can't really convince us of anything. And I think the truth is probably in between there. Um, and yet um, I lean a little bit more toward the skeptical side of things, saying that uh, the claims made by big tech in order to sell advertising are wildly exaggerated. And that was certainly true, I believe, with Cambridge Analytica. They promised their funders and the, the political campaigns they worked for, we are so good at this, we're going to be able to deliver you people's minds and hearts in ways that nobody else can do it because we're just really good. We'll, we'll do this psychological profiling, we'll match it to their targeted preferences, and we'll deliver the votes to you. Well. That's really, it's really debatable whether they could do any of those things or if it was really just kind of a hyped way of taking on what Facebook already does all the time and turning it into a new product where they, they were making claims that were probably partially at least bogus. And yet it was really um, interesting because people, it did illuminate for a lot of people the problem that comes, not so much how these things work so much as what are, what are the possible impacts of systems that are designed to persuade us, are designed to create little bubbles of information around us that are so shaped by these unaccountable forces. Uh, and so since Cambridge Analytica was so involved with Brexit and um, kind of involved as well with the Trump campaign, people began to see well, they'd already seen that our, our society is so divided and so polarized, and now they're seeing this as one of the causes of it, is these companies that have no interest in social well-being for money doing things that have enormous political and social influence. In the United States, there, there was a big divide in our information environment um, where a right-wing inf information news ecosystem was being built from really the late 70s and into the, the era of Fox News, um, talk radio, um, where really they were kind of sealing off from the rest of media this world of information created for the right-wing audience and the evangelical Christian audience. Um, and so then this technological way of dividing audiences in order to sell advertising is built on top of something that's already very um, sort of hedged off in its own little world where this is the news, this is the reality we believe in. Don't believe the other stuff. That's all fake, it's all wrong, it's all deceptive. Um, and so um, I think it's just taken what was already there and it's just blown it up in a, in a way that's really been, um, well, we can see the results. I mean, it's really, um, right now in, in the US, we have all kinds of people who are dying of COVID and are saying, but I, it's not real, I don't believe it, while they're dying <laughs> of something because they've been told not to believe it. Yeah. 
But you also, what comes up in the study as well that students seem to be really surprised about. So we kind of expect this from this corporate, a commercial world. We're like, yeah, we get it. They're trying to manipulate us. We try to keep one step ahead and that's life. Um, but in the study, students learn about um, the algorithm and the context or some of the, some of the data surveillance in the context of their own in university institutions. They seem to be really surprised about that. What is the role that algorithms are playing within post-secondary institutions and how does it's that... It's interesting because I have a feeling they're less surprised right now than they were <laughs> because when you were on a campus physically and, and interacting in classrooms, there was software being used by the university in a variety of ways, but it wasn't in your face how it was being used. Um, and so the students we talked to um, really in the fall of, of 2019 were like, they do what? <laughs> um, and since the pandemic, um, and so many learners are learning remotely now, there are more and more systems for controlling the environment for the learning. Um, and the w worst example, I think, is the proctoring software that universities are using, and, and other schools, I gather, from you know high school and so on, sort of take over your computer and say, we're going to inspect the space you're in. We're going to look at everything because we, we think you're, you're going to cheat. <laughs> Basically, it's very untrusting software. And then if you look off to the side or if you pause for a while thinking about an exam question, the algorithm may say, oops, we got a problem here. Somebody is cheating. And the students hate it. I mean, they it's, a, it's such an in-your-face invasion of privacy that I think the rebellion is already underway, saying we can't do things this way. This is way too intrusive. You've got to not do this. But I think in other ways, there's some of this going on in Zoom classes and so on. You know, I mean, people are seeing your environment in a way that they didn't. And it's really exacerbating inequality because people were able to, to kind of erase some of those differences when they were in a classroom together. Um, but when you're in the household and the cats or the, the siblings or, you know, other people in the house are around and the, the setting is visible to others, it's just very invasive and very problematic. And so I think probably this will be the Cambridge Analytica of higher education for students in terms of like, this is not okay. I'm not okay with this. And it's incredibly uncreative, right? I mean, it, it, when we talk about trust in these systems as well, it's like, well, I guess the education system is not concerned. You know, they're concerned with stratifying whether I'm my attention. You know, they're using these matrix from a commercial sense. You know, what I'm thinking, I'm processing. <laughs> Where is the room for that? And how come the institution doesn't feel any need to bend and change the way that they educate and the way that they skill? Because finding answers or having the answers in your head in a test room. I mean, what year are we living what in? Like, what is what's the point of that? <laughs> That's not the way we're retrieving information. We can look it up on things. Google now. We don't have to memorize it. <laughs> yeah, mm, no, it does absolutely. seem to be really regressive in a sense. Um, mm. On the other hand, I see that, you know, people are really struggling to figure out how to do this. Um, I don't think the proctoring software is okay at all. And yet I, I think there are times when even the, the, the teachers are discovering things they didn't know about the systems that they use um, and, and are having to learn new ways to, to teach and to connect um, that's very different from what they're used to. So I, I don't want to blame the 
totally the institutions. They're really struggling to figure out how to do this and make it work. And on the other hand, the products being thrown into the mix can be troubling. I mean, even Zoom has gone yeah. through some real learning curve stuff because there's their uh, privacy stuff wasn't wasn't adequate, and they've certainly had a lot of um, issues with Zoom bombing and trolls being able to just kind of walk into a classroom and do terrible things for God knows what reason, but. <laughs> People, that's part of this culture uh, online is is the um, trolling side of it. Mm. When did the algorithms take over and why does it matter? I mean, one tends to assume that uh, the growing role of them in our lives grew out of a necessity to manage, you know, an exponential abundance of data and information online. And many people will say that. Uh, somebody I interviewed in, in the first series said, you know, what, what, what do you want? Like there's billions of, of minutes of footage put up on uh, YouTube every day. Uh, someone's got to manage it. Thank God for the algorithm, he said. When did they start uh, uh, playing such a role in our... Um, in the internet, uh, in our relationship with the internet? And then how did they, when did they take over? When did they become such an essential? Well, it's kind of funny because Google started its search engine in 1998 and had no idea how they were going to make money to support what they were doing, right? And so it wasn't until the early 2000s that um, somebody pointed out, you know, there's all this data people shed when they're on Google, when they're searching. And you could capture that and maybe do something with it. Oh yeah, sell advertising and that would support it because advertising was a, a common way to support websites, of course, even before they were becoming so targeted and so data-based. So it's sort of in the early 2000s when that became a thing. And it was partly because of the technological capability to handle lots of data to collect it in real time, to process it very quickly and at huge volume. So um, that was just something that was not technically possible in the 90s. Uh, and so with some technological advances, suddenly you could not only collect the data, you could do things with it. Um, and then it became quickly, um, you know, Google distinguished itself by having these sort of nicely obscure ads on the side of their, their search engine. I don't know if you remember search engines of the past, but they were, you know, big banner ads and dancing hot dogs going across your screen. And that was really obnoxious. And so Google just seemed like, wow, this is great. And look, they're advertising things that are relevant to me. It's in my my town. How did they do that? Um, so that, that became, you know, they developed this ability to gather, process the data, and then to kind of build a system where they could match ads, which they thought were going to be relevant to the people doing the searching. So I would say it's been about 10 years that this has been a thing that um, has been possible. And oh, Amazon is another one that was starting this in the late 90s, where they, they, were, they were kind of ahead of the curve in many ways in terms of doing this predictive algorithm use of data from people visiting their websites and saying, oh, you bought that book, how about these books? Um, so they were early in on that too. And, and they're a mass collector of data. In terms of a chicken egg, you're saying it's re really all about how do you finance uh, these, these massively expensive search engines, not so much about making the search engines 
that much more relevant. Yeah, I do think they do work on the issues of things like making the search better and making, um, I mean, it's always behind the curve on it, but trying to prevent things that people don't want to see being in front of them. Um, I mean, they, they are working on that. But I think the other thing that happened in the 2000s was people who had really been technologically unable to participate in internet culture for whatever reason. Um, they just didn't have the background, they didn't have the know-how, they didn't have the tools, um, were suddenly able to talk to each other online, to create things online, to share what they created. And that just sort of unleashed this creative wave from people. And it, I'm sure they were being creative in the past, but it suddenly became possible to easier to create things digitally and, and certainly easier to share them and to be in form communities of interest and communities where, you know, I mean, fan fiction, you know, has taken off and um, creating memes and sharing them and so on. So I think the volume of creative work people were sharing and sharing their thoughts and sharing their opinions and sharing their stupid ideas in many cases. <laughs> um, and, yeah, um, and yet, you know, they were empowered to do this because the technology made it much more accessible and easy to do that. Um, so combining those two things of people want to use search, they want to see stuff, they want to find things with no, people want to make things and they want to share things and they want to see how people react to the things they make. So there's there's kind of that just sort of blew up as well, which creates, of course, much more information that you have to manage somehow. And so more algorithms, it generates more advertising revenue. So you find more ways to draw more people into watching and, and paying attention to the metrics and becoming making people entrepreneurs where... I want to watch my YouTube numbers tick up so that I will get, make the ad dollars. And, you know, then there's the influencers who are getting all this free stuff and having all this attention and making all this money. This weird, skewed version of capitalism intersecting with creativity that um, I think is spurring a lot of the growth of this kind of peer production Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I think we'll definitely come back to that when we talk a little bit more about the future of, of education. But yeah, the lateral knowledge sharing and the peer to peer models really do seem to be, um, you know, a massive uh, proponent of internet life that is now just dominating the way that we acquire and share knowledge. But it's interesting how it changes in some ways, you know, in, in some ways in wonderful ways that it, that it takes away the power from certain individuals and, and experts within a hierarchy. But then there's other issues with it too. So, so you know, it's a double-edged... Um... Mm -hmm. Yeah, taste-making is democratized in a way, but it's also being channeled through these capitalistic models that um, warp it in some ways that are pretty profound. Mm. Um, so I think many see the work of algorithms as similar to that of a librarian, like hashtags or the new Dewey Decimal System. I know this is probably horrifying to hear as a <laughs> more familiar with these systems but I think just in general uh, I think that people feel that way um, and perhaps uh, hashtags are even more empowering than the Dewey Decimal System because not everybody understands that and hashtags are 
you know, a way of organizing ideas um, and deciding uh, what's important and how to categorize those things. Um, and that the algorithm helps us in sifting through all of it and getting the right answers to our questions, etc. But how do the ethics behind decisions made concerning algorithms different from library services and traditional search and find methods? Mm. I think there's some very different underlying value systems um, between for-profit corporations that are helping us <laughs> organize information in many ways, and that of librarians, where the values are, first of all, libraries tend to be very local. They're community-oriented. They're not trying to be huge. Well, okay, Library of Congress and you know Harvard's library, but um, they are responsive to their local communities, and they're um, accountable to their local communities in ways that Google is not, or Facebook, which has this global influence in cultures Facebook has no understanding of whatsoever. Um, and so there, that's a part of it is that the libraries are have a community relationship that I don't think these corporations can have. They're also um, committed to social responsibility and the common, the public good. And that's not what, you know, the shareholders care about when it comes to these giant companies, which are the largest companies in the world now by market capitalization. They've overtaken the oil business, for example. Um, almost all of the top 10 uh, largest corporations in the world by market capitalization are these tech companies. I know. That are trading We never thought they could get more monolithic and conglomerated, right? I mean, when the 90s yeah, and the 2000s. Yeah, and then they're buying each other out. And yeah. we've, we really are at a place where, um, you know, we it's like the, the Gilded Age 2.0 <laughs> where these robber barons have power and control over things. Um, and people are, there's a tech lash happening. People are beginning to say, this is not right. We don't like what they're doing. We think with it, we should have a little more control over what they're doing. And so I think people are going to have to work out how to do that. Another value that, that librarians have, they don't always live up to, but they value privacy as a condition for intellectual freedom, for people to be able to inquire in whatever direction they want to inquire without it coming back to bite them. Uh, and so um, in some cases, librarians have really stepped up for that. In others, they're kind of bowing to the technological powers that be. And, you know, publishers want data on which books and journal articles are being downloaded. And it's very hard to say, no, we're not going to do that when your users are saying, but I want that book. I want it online. So, um, but I think fundamentally there's some very different kind of orientations of the librarianship compared to the tech industry, which is also very rooted in um, American late 20th century values of let's accumulate as much money as possible. Greed is good. It's kind of the Wolf of Wall Street moved to the West Coast and hooked up with some hippies. So they thought they were being all about freedom. And yet really they're also all about dominance and money. And um, and so the, the Silicon Valley culture has really influenced these platforms in ways that it's going to be hard to claw it back. Um, they also, I think, um, libraries are for everybody and they're, they're, they pay attention to issues of diverse people in their community and what do they need and how can we meet that need. And 
in Silicon Valley, there's just great ignorance about different ways of seeing the world. Mm. I think that's really great, really important thing that you that you highlight. Most people, I think now at this point, recognize that, you know, yes, a bunch of like white boys, very optimistic, um, you know, no idea of other people's experiences, couldn't imagine how um, anybody being allowed to comment on your page might end up in violent, uh, you know, duplicating violent behaviors and stuff online. And in an amplified, very, very public environment. So who is designing these algorithms and, and how have the architects of these algorithms, like both individual coders, which you spoke to a bit there, as well as the mandate of these companies, Google, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, worth noting for massive companies, two owners, right? <laughs> Google, Google owns YouTube, Facebook owns Instagram. Um, affected, you know, how did this affect... Um, the path that we find ourselves on now. Um, oh, I think it's huge. I think it's unfortunately having an impact on, on creative work because it, it's creative work is being funneled into systems that assume what you're really after is lots of attention, meaning lots of money. Um, and so people are trying to figure out how to make the system work for them to reach audiences. It's all as if kind of uh, the Silicon Valley concept of human relationships is um, is about capitalism. And the only reason that you really want to tell somebody something is to market that idea to them so that you can do something financial with it. Uh, and so I think that's under that that that's influenced the the architecture and the infrastructure that we're using on these systems in ways that is really, really problematic, you know, and that that's everything as simple as the likes and the, the metrics that you see about attention, um, which is only kind of there to help make you want more attention and figure out ways to get that attention so that the system can generate more ad dollars for everybody. Um, it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very individualistic and it's very capitalistic. It's very oriented around um, very simple goals: make money, get attention. <laughs> um, as and I think that's really unhealthy, and I think it's it's influenced very fundamentally the design of these systems. Mm. It's leaking into all these other areas too, so that you know there this tech solutionism, homelessness. Let's make an app for that, or <laughs> whatever big social issue is out there. Instead of really understanding all the dynamics going into that um, and honoring the experiences of the people involved in those things, and also caring about expertise, where people have actually been working on these problems for a long time, these guys come along and say, "Well, we'll just write." some code, that'll take care of that problem. And that has all kinds of unintended consequences. I mean, I don't think it's maliciously meant or strictly about making money. It's a lot of it's just sheer ignorance and hubris. Mm. There's a very good book called Automating Inequality, um, which gets at a lot of the ways that people who think, you know, this is gonna be a good idea and it'll save us money and it'll be so much more efficient can can go badly wrong. And sometimes it's like, let's build a system to make it harder to get welfare. <laughs> let's make it a system that will actually accomplish these goals we have, which is to spend less money on poor people or whatever. 
Um, and then in other cases, they really think, oh, this is probably a really good idea. We can fix this. Let's just write the code for it. But in both cases, it can be really destructive. And it was really interesting talking to college students about those kinds of applications and implications of this age of algorithms. They, they, they were pretty savvy about social media. They use it. They see the ads follow them around. They think it's creepy. They don't like it. But they live with it because they don't see they have any choice. Um, but then when we started talking about, yeah, what about algorithms deciding how long you're going to spend in jail? A judge will use a, a, an algorithm to, to decide on sentencing. Is that OK? No, that's horrible. What? Is that really going on? Yeah, what about you know getting a loan, um, getting admitted to school? All of these things are now becoming automated in some ways that um, when they heard about some of these things, they were, it was interesting um, because they felt very resigned to what they knew about algorithms being used in social media. And they found workarounds. They found ways to keep some of their activities private. Um, and they found ways to see perspectives that they weren't necessarily being shown by the social media they used. But they had no idea this was going on in social services, in banking, in, in loan financing, and all kinds of different ways. And, and they were quite upset about it and actually went from being resigned, oh well, that's just the way it is, to saying, that's not the way it should be. We should do something about it. And so they got really energized and kind of ready to become activists around this. I think in a way that just when they were tying this only to their own experience of social media, um, as upset as they were about their loss of privacy, um, they felt powerless. And it was interesting to see them start to feel like, we should do something about this. And, and becoming a little bit empowered. You know, I want to learn more about this so that we can change this. So that was exciting. I think that showed that there is real potential for making this part of education and that, that the students want to know more about this. This is not just an add-on that will, you know, not be of any interest to them. Although on the other hand, they didn't think their teachers knew anything about it or could tell them anything valuable. <laughs> so. Um, there, there was, um, and they had reasons for that. Their experience in K-12 and to some extent in college with media literacy or information literacy was really inadequate in so many ways. They were like, they're telling us stuff from 10 years ago and everything has changed and they have no idea. You know, you can't say don't use dot-com sites anymore as a way of filtering. I never heard of that till I read the study. I didn't know that that was something that was being told. People used to say that way back in the day. And it was bad advice then, and it's terrible advice now. And yet some of them were saying, yeah, it's what we still hear from our teachers. Because they could so easily game the system. Like if that were if that was common knowledge that .org was more legitimate than .com, then people would just get .org. It <laughs> yeah, sure. doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah. So it was an interesting moment of saying, you know, they want to learn more. They want to be able to talk to each other more about this. They want to get going on making some change. But I don't think we can just say, okay, we'll just put in more lessons about how to do this or how to think about this. They want to know it, but they, they don't necessarily trust the system that we have for learning about it. Interesting. The, the professors we interviewed were also like, 
I'm so upset about this. This is a huge thing. Something must be done. I don't understand it at all. I have not been trained. I can't teach this. So somebody else should teach it. Um, so I think that's an interesting point of, uh, what would you call it, uh, sort of coming down to earth and being modest about what we can do, but at the same time realizing we all agree we need to do something. And that something might involve students in peer learning and in discovery in ways that are not being used currently in our structures for learning about media and information literacy. Um, how, do, how do algorithms amplify human and systemic bias? I mean, you explained uh, uh, a little bit, but what, what were some of the, or I guess what are the processes involved in that? And we talked about some of the results, but... Well, one, one early example would be that um, a black woman scholar was looking up, well, a couple, one is a woman was looking for something about, you know, she wanted to get something for her nieces, black girls. And she started doing research on black girls and found all of the images that popped up were pornographic. And all of the links were to um, sites that were objectifying black girls' bodies in some really disturbing ways. So that that's um, Sophia Noble, and she, she studied that. Algorithms of Oppression is the book she wrote about it. It's something that's really hard to study and replicate because as soon as somebody goes public and says, look at this search result, they change it. <laughs> so it doesn't pop up the same way. Um, there was a case where um, image recognition was a problem because there's so many problems <laughs> with black skin and photography anyway, going way back. Um, but Google Images was trying to automatically find and apply metadata to images and saw a picture of a black man and said, gorilla. Well, that was a very embarrassing moment. And so they decided just not to index those pictures rather than figure out, you know, because they had to pull the plug fast. It was, it was very embarrassing. For the so company. hide the bias, hide the bias instead of change yeah, it or, yeah. or acknowledge um, it or confront it in any way that yeah. So there's mm. that, and then there was a woman who was um, just searching for stuff, and the ads that popped up um, were for criminal background checks. She was a black woman, and it assumed that the things that she was searching for meant that she was interested in doing criminal background checks on black people. And some of that is um, kind of done at the end of where, where people who are wanting to put these ads out lack imagination or whatever about the, their audience, um, or they, they have a very narrow view of what the audience will do with this information. Facebook has had, apparently, um, if you go in to place an ad, they give you all these options. What kind of, how do you want to target this ad? And they had things like, They've changed it, but they had Jew hater as a category. I want to advertise to Jew haters. I want to advertise to um, Nazi lovers. I mean, it was some of the examples are just extraordinarily appalling. And some of them were illegal, even in the United States, where we don't have very much regulation on any of this stuff. They were letting people advertise real estate and rentals, limiting by race. And that's not legal that's an illegal thing so um and yet yeah. well and they haven't disclosed any information about who they are necessarily and yet because of this huge pool of data that's very um tightly clustered around that individual the advertiser can tell or the system can tell this is a black person with an income of this and uh 
educational level of that. And so you can you can really use that in some very bad ways. So so where are we going in the future with this? For the, I mean, in terms of, you know, students talk about some of the, the creepiness of the listening. And from my understanding, it's not actually that it's listening. It's that you're, it's the Internet of Things, essentially. It's the phone in your pocket that knows you or with someone else. And, and so it knows that your friend was searching that. So, you know, you might have been just talking about it with the friend, but they were searching for it before. And so now your phone's saying, hey, you were just with so-and-so. Um, and so it feels like, you know, it gives this creepy impression. So is the Internet of Things, the Internet of Things is basically, the, you know, physical uh, objects that you have. It could be a fridge or a uh, smart uh, you know, Google Nest or your cell phone or your Fitbit or any number of things that are connected to the network that are sharing information with the network, um, but that physically move around with you in the world. So you think, oh, I'm going to turn my computer off and they think they're going to stop bugging me. Um, but of course, you're walking around with a computer and yeah and that's definitely made it easier to gather a whole lot of and a different kind of data about people like where are they going where do they stop for a little bit you know are they looking in a shop window so where are we going we're we're going into a there's kind of a a fork in the road (laughs) Um, we could just keep going down this road and make more and more things connected to the internet and more and more likely to conduct surveillance on us um, and there's certainly a lot of that going on, as you mentioned, with the Internet of Things. There's definitely a, a certain level of people getting used to things. And that can happen, too, with the current pandemic, where people are allow a certain amount of surveillance into their lives. And yet um, it's not going to go back when, when we have when the pandemic is over. So we have to watch out for that sort of thing. On the other hand, I think people are much more aware of this stuff than they were Um, partly through Ed Snowden's revelations in 2013, partly the Cambridge Analytica kind of revealing, pulling back the curtain and showing how some of this stuff works. I think also just dissatisfaction with the ways it's heightened polarization and made it, it made people more outspokenly ugly (laughs) to each other as well as splitting up the idea of what is real between one group and another as being so so diametrically opposed. People are not happy about that. And they're not happy with the, the kind of the fallout that comes from that division that's being heightened by these systems. So I think I think there is this tech clash happening and I think it's paused a little bit with the pandemic because people rely on these technologies now in ways that they were able to not rely on them in the past. Uh, and yet you know, there's some hearings that have been held in Congress that have been much more targeted and asking better questions than a few, just two or three years ago. And I, th- I think people are ready to say, this isn't working for us at all anymore. And we need to come up with some way to make these companies, these large companies, not just powerful, but responsible for what they do with that power. Uh, so I think there is some real political and social urgency in in fixing this problem. And it may be breaking up the companies um, with antitrust investigations, or it may be something else. Um, There's one interesting concept is to make them information fiduciaries, where they owe to you as a customer the responsibility to take care of your information, um, the way that, you know, a financial advisor may be a, a fiduciary for your financial affairs. I don't know how we're going to pull it off, and there's certainly a lot of high-paid lobbyists trying to fend off any regulation, 
uh, and yet I think it's got to come. Um, and and this is an international push. Um, certainly, the EU made some advances with trying to at least have some kind of regulations in place. They're not perfect by any means, um, but they at least kind of called the question and said, shouldn't we do something about this? Um, the state of California has a privacy law that was passed that is innovative and you know laying some possible groundwork for something in the future. Some irony there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, those who know, right? Yeah. Those who oh. know know exactly how terrifying, right? We know that some yeah, of the work I, in tech and stuff. California created all this and now, yeah. A lot of these yeah. tech people are like, I'm not going to give my kid a phone. That's, <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. have them using technology in school. They're going to go to a Waldorf school and they're not going to, you know, they're going to handle real things. So they know. <laughs> the hippie is still in them. I guess my fear is that the lash, that they're too massive to feel the lash, that it's like kicking a massive robot in the ankles. I, I didn't even feel it. My uh, Another one thing I wanted to ask you, too, is about transparency. I mean, is transparency, obviously, one that's one of the major differences between, uh, you know, information librarian services. But... One of the reasons that we make these trade-offs uh, is to manage, like, there's only so many, so much transparency. You can show me under the hood, but I don't have time to look under the hood of every single one of these things I use. And you you talk about VPNs, and I had noticed just in the last little while that all of these, all of these cookie options, all of these telling me, do you want, do you want, you know, and of course they love, they're, they're great with semantic uh, uh, coercion <laughs> where they kind of go, are you a fool and you, <laughs> and you want to see random stuff or would you like to continue your same like <laughs> uh, tailored uh, experience of this website or they, you know, they have some variation of that. Tell us if you want. And most of the time I just click, you know, continue, proceed, or yeah. depending on how critical I'm thinking that day, I go, <laughs> Yeah, no, give me the give me the weird experience, give me the non tailored experience. But I'm not sure yeah. it makes that much of a difference. Um, can it? Yeah, can it make a, a large difference? Do we need to do it in large numbers? Like, how do we show that this is important? I to think us? so. Actually, um, I think the growth of ad blockers is an interesting phenomenon where people are saying, you know what, I don't want these ads. They're they're in my face. I, they're annoying me. I'm just going to block them. <laughs> and more and more browsers are building in capacity to do that in different ways so that it's not, you don't even have to find out there is such a thing as an ad blocker and go research it and, and, and bring it onto your browser. Some of this is becoming more built in. So I think some privacy stuff is becoming more visible to people and more um, helpful mm. to people in ways that could really alter the landscape a bit. I mean, if everybody's blocking ads, what do we do for money? <laughs> and that's true for, you know, traditional media that relies on advertising on their websites as and, and creative people who need the advertising to support their, their websites. But we have to come up with a different kind of compact about that, I think, than what we have right now. And I think it's going to push the question because people are going to have these tools for doing things to enhance their privacy that will alter some of the rules of the game, perhaps. We'll see. <laughs> um, I know Chrome, which is a, a Google product, it's a browser that Google owns, has put in some, some things to help people block ads. 
but in ways that are going to advantage Google, which is mm, of course, of course, of course. So we're um, in the age of I yeah, you're the platform, there's... the market, and the product. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, so there will be a lot of uh, pushing and pulling going on before we get anywhere with any of this. I do think um, one thing that librarians have done is try to educate people about privacy tools that they can use. And I've done some of that myself, but I worry because we're putting the emphasis and the onus on the individual to protect their mm, privacy. And mm -hmm. it shouldn't be that way. It should be um, the other way around. We should demand from these uh, platforms less invasiveness and less surveillance. Um, so I, I, I have mixed feelings about teaching about privacy and teaching tools for privacy when it's so much emphasizing defensive postures you have to take yourself that are going to take time and some know-how as opposed to you know kind of advocating for change at a higher level so that individuals don't have to go out of their way to protect their individual privacy but where society is better protected as a whole. So this is a best practice then I guess that's been going around with capitalism for quite some time because it's the same with environmental issues, right? It's like you should recycle instead of like stopping uh, the, spill, uh, right. the spilling, right? I mean, it's this corporate responsibility downloaded to individuals and then individuals don't have time for it and therefore it's your fault, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying. I hadn't thought about it just given the COVID you know, the, the pandemic reality of the, it's one thing if I've got my private phone, you know, showing me um, plus size clothing or for stuff for fertility or, you know, whatever stuff that's private information. Now I'm screen sharing and everybody's seeing that my ads, right? So now your ads, the pop-ups reveal so much about yourself. And, and again, professional, home life, all of those things. Now you're screen sharing at work and it's sharing, you know, that you're impotent or that, you know, I mean, or, or you know, or you're, or you're having to go, I swear I didn't click on that, you know, or whatever yeah. it is. So it's interesting that that uh, private public situation we're in right now that might be giving people more reason to think, oh, I think it will block the stuff. Like it's convenient, but it's very exposing. It's kind of um, a form of transparency that isn't being necessarily something that the platforms want to sh give us, but in, we're seeing things that we wouldn't have seen otherwise because we're having to be social around these things in a way that we weren't. And yeah, interesting. I do think there's some pushback. People are beginning to say, I'm not okay with this and you guys got to do something about it. We all have agreed you need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how this goes. Well, where there is some responsibility in terms of like global, globalized uh, communities and equity is concerned is certainly uh, in the Western and, and, and first world or whatever, because um, no doubt as these new uh, masses of, uh, of, of people in, in the global South are invited onto these platforms, um, that narrative will be even more problematic, right? I mean, if you, you want it for free or you didn't have access to it, now you've got access to the world. So, you know, put up and shut up um yeah and and it's it's facebook has done a lot to roll out the internet to the world but the internet they offer is facebook uh and so for a lot of people i i had some students from vietnam who were saying facebook is the internet in vietnam because that's what people see that's that's where they go that's how they do everything they they, they were like i we don't do snapchat that was big at the time Never heard of Snapchat. We don't do that. We just use 
um, Facebook for everything. And we know that the state is watching everything we do on Facebook because that's part of the deal. <laughs> they wouldn't allow it in if the state didn't get to have some surveillance sharing with Facebook in that situation. So yeah, there's some serious global um, implications for all of this. And unfortunately, you know, Americans tend to be very parochial about their concerns and they don't even necessarily pay attention to it unless you have something like a mass genocide. And then people are like, oh, wait, those people use Facebook and it's doing bad things to them? Oh, well, maybe, hmm, <laughs> maybe that's not good. But I, I don't think we're on the whole, and, and I include myself in this, all that aware of what's going on in other countries that's being influenced by companies based in California for the most part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the takeaways from the report identified from the study is that uh, trust is dead for many students and skepticism lives. I wanted to talk about the distinguishing, how to distinguish, what is the difference between that and critical thinking uh, skepticism? Because I think a number of folks often conflate the two um, and think, well, I don't trust anything, so I'm a critical thinker. So what, what is the, what are the differences there? Because you do, certainly the, the report, of course, identifies, you know, critical thinking skills as a major aspect of just being able to, to arm people uh, with the ability to navigate these information, these very complex information systems. Right. And yet we, we've tended to focus on, look at this media artifact and let's poke holes in it. Let's try to figure out what's wrong with it or how to how to understand it by taking it to bits and criticizing every little bit. Um, unfortunately, that has kind of paralleled or, or caused maybe falling trust in expertise and the concept of expertise and in the systems, the social systems that make people experts in a variety of way, ways. So, you know, when you're told, let's just Critical thinking is taking things apart and not trusting them until you've verified everything for yourself. Also is saying nothing should be trusted. That epidemiologist, who cares that they have these degrees and this experience? I mean, I don't, I, why should I trust them? <laughs> um, I don't know who they are. Uh, and I don't know where they're coming from. Maybe they've got, you know, some plot is afoot here. Um, so some of that is um, really destructive in terms of being able to critically say, I can't know everything. So I'm going to trust this person over here who's an expert at history or an expert at social movements. And I'm going to rely on them to help me understand this topic. And it's funny to me because one of the big rallying cries right now in this whole conspiracy theory ridden world of the earth is really flat, the moon landing didn't happen, et cetera, et cetera. And QAnon, which has you know, become this giant conglomeration of strange uh, c conspiracy theories all mushed together and <laughs> turned into almost a cult-like it's very strange. I don't know what to make mm, of and it. And a few lawmakers. Well, you know. Well, and, oh, I know. Yeah. Now a few of them with a lot of power. Yeah. yeah it's a completely different epistemological stance to take, uh, which has some real aspects that are related to evangelical Christianity, I think, and some other um, ways of interpreting signs importance in the world that um, are very different from sort of enlightenment 
era-informed ways of doing science and knowledge. So um, one, of, one of the rallying cries for these folks in this situation who are creating new ways of understanding the world that are kind of counter traditional ways of understanding the world is research it yourself. They will say, you know, what do you mean you don't believe me? Just go out and research it yourself. You'll find the evidence for this. And of course, people are really willing to have evi create evidence <laughs> to support all of these things. So if you don't trust authority, you don't trust expertise, but you're willing to go research it yourself so that you can go find the evidence you're looking for to support whatever belief you have. It's this weird inversion of research and of understanding information. It's kind of a, it's consumer choice. I'm gonna to go to YouTube and I will find the information that will underpin, that will support what I have to say. And I will reject. Yeah, we have the answers you're looking and, for. Um, yeah. A guy recently wrote a book called Failure to Disrupt, which is about education technology. And there's one little almost throwaway passage in this book. He does a really good job of kind of assessing what are the issues with educational technology and what to be aware of and, and concerned about. But he has this one little short passage that just fascinates me where he says, the people who are spreading um, conspiracy theories online are, are really good at educating their audiences. They have ways of using technology that are incredibly effective in schooling people in ways of thinking and in, in and getting them to do research along certain pathways um, that they have defined for them. And I just thought, that's mind-blowing. Okay, what do I do with that? Um, because you don't want to be that kind of teacher, right? You don't want to become the kind of teacher who's doing all this sort of grooming and coaxing and guiding. And yet, on the other hand, a lot of people are seeking. They're That's seeking what you're up against, yeah. something. They want meaning in life. They want to know. And we haven't been nearly as effective as these conspiracy theorists at supporting that, that desire. There's another concept that came out of a religion studies paper from 2011, conspirituality, where people find spiritual, <laughs> they're, they're on a spiritual quest and conspiracy theories fill in for them that um, unanswerable, the answers or the, yeah. the communities that they want to belong to and so on. And so new age religion, they were pointing out, has some interesting ways of kind of folding into conspiracy theory thinking mm. um, and distrust of authority and expertise and so on, um, which I think also applies interestingly to what's going on with QAnon and the way that mm. they're spreading this strange alternate belief system through all kinds of pathways online. They're very, very clever at using the affordances of the platforms to reach different audiences and shape messages that will match those audiences' interests. Yeah. So, you know, you need to know how, how to trust and who to trust, but also when to be critical and when to be questioning the, the structures around you and the people who are saying they, are, they have the answers and here's what you need to do. It's uh, from the students we talked to, it sounded as if they grew, they're, they're exposure to information literacy or media literacy 
came through just doing research on the open web. You, you made things by going out on the web and finding stuff and remixing it or learning from it or whatever. And that was different than in the previous years where you, you read the textbook or you, you, know, you, you went to the library and somebody had selected all these books for you to, to learn from. Um, and so it's great, but it also can be kind of exhausting to figure out how do I help students be discriminating among all of these options when there's just billions of results for every search you do. The, the faculty members who we interviewed, it was so interesting to see the contrast because they would just shut it down. They were like, I go to these three news sources every day and that's where I get my news. I don't get it from social media. They probably do, but they were <laughs> denying it. Um, but they had found certain places to trust and they, they were kind of shutting down the other options around them when it came to at least being informed about what we call news. They didn't want to be influenced by what they saw on social media. Whereas for the students, students, well, they, they, were, they were in some ways more informed than I would have expected in terms of like figuring out how to look at multiple positions on a particular issue. And they did have ideas about what news sources could be trusted, but they got most of their news, they got an awful lot of their news through social media and through the cues that other, you know, things that other people presented to them. Here's an interesting link you might be interested in. Um, so I think trying to come up with both a respect for the kind of vernacular ways people inform themselves through community networking and peer-to-peer -peer sharing and, and finding out what is good about that and honoring that while at the same time helping people understand that, you know, it's a, here's a shortcut. You might want to go to these sources if you want something, or here's how you can decide when you want to turn to an expert and how you would find those experts that could be. Um, Is the, some of what they described in terms of um, looking for, I mean, it reminds me of some of the political conversations right now and since 2016 about from the left of, you know, do we need to be listening more to the right? Do we need to be, how much do we need to listen and be like, oh, I think I know where you're coming from. So you need to see, <laughs> discussed some of these students, you know, willfully choosing to list, to read other news sources that might've been, uh, I don't know if they were explicitly counter to the one that they just read, or they came from someone who didn't have exactly the same opinion as them. How useful is this? How much are we torturing ourselves <laughs> with these like <laughs> toxic messaging? Right. I think there has been some research that suggests that earlier idea of that we live in filter bubbles is somewhat exaggerated and that people, say, on the right politically are actually really aware of what news sources on the left are saying um, and that most people get a kind of a mixed diet when it comes to, they may, when it comes to broadcast, not have a much of a mix. They may be purely Fox News viewers and they don't trust any of the other ones but when it comes to social media there's a little bit more mixing going on in there according to some of the research I've seen um, so I, I think that whole concept that we are being not shown the other side has been somewhat exaggerated um, and folks were always doing that to a certain right polarized it seems less extreme like yeah. the rhetoric might be less extreme but it's a similar silo of just like I trust my lefty news, you know, newspaper writers, and and that's what I 
what I stick with. Yeah, without necessarily seeing some of the gaps in what they're doing too. So, yeah. And I mean, in the old days before the internet, you know, we only had so <laughs> many channels and we only had the local newspaper. We probably didn't subscribe to the New York Times if we were living in Minnesota. And content has become much more diverse in terms yeah, of... I yeah, I think there's much more opportunity to, to see a variety of perspectives on things than there used to be, which which, which puts the burden on, you know, sorting through some of this stuff as mm. well. <laughs> and then we go back to algorithms as a, as a, as an easy way, yeah, as an yeah, easy way to, yeah. to help us, right. to support us. I'll yeah. let that machine do it for me. Um, the, uh, the thing that I think I would like for students to learn is how to think about information as systems. So, you know, journalism as a profession has certain kinds of underlying values and beliefs. And they don't always get it right. In fact, they never get it totally right. But there are certain principles behind what a, a, a reporter reporting news is trying to do. And there's a difference between an opinion piece and a reporting, you know, a news report. It's very hard to tell those things now because it's all kind of mushed together in, in this big ball of information coming from all kinds of directions. So I'd like for them to know something more about what is informing the ways journalists do their work compared to what an influencer is doing on YouTube when they're trying to um, tell people things. You know, what are, what are the underlying mechanisms that guide the decisions different creators are making in these different realms? What is, what is a, an expert do? What is a scientist doing that's different than what somebody is doing when they're just coming up with their own belief system? So it's kind of this basic epistemological understanding of information as structures, as systems, as social systems with different rules. And what are those rules? And does that make a difference when I'm looking at evaluating information? Mm, yeah. Where do we start, I guess, then? Where do we start in, in classrooms? Like, is there a subject matter? Is there an entry point? Is there an age group that's a start? Like, My experience with media literacy and information literacy instruction is probably different than what Canadians have experienced. And I was really disappointed hearing what the students had to tell us about what they had been taught, um, which was really, really inadequate, and they knew it. <laughs> um, so they were self-teaching. They were learning from each other. And actually, it was funny because we did these focus groups, and somebody would start talking about a thing they do to keep their privacy uh, protected, and they'd say, wait, hold on. What did, how do you spell that? Let me write that down. So they were learning from each other, even in that the context of a half-hour conversation. And they'd learned it in part because they were defending themselves from school authorities who were trying to control what they saw online in school. And they had like, we find a way around that. Uh, so it was this really interesting act of resistance that was also sort of sharing among this peer group. I, on the whole, I would say, while I was disappointed to hear what they had been taught, <laughs> both in K-12 schools and in college, I was impressed with how they thought about things and how they approached things and how inquiring they were about things. And, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that the people who spread the most misinformation are people who have been out of school for decades. It's the older group, the oldest cohort online that is sharing the most misinformation. The people who share the most information are 65 and older, according to some studies. They're much more likely to 
not be able to discriminate among sources while they're online. And some of that is, is digital literacy and some of it is just, it's been a long time since they've been in school, they're more conservative than the youth and um, maybe more trusting of the people who they follow online, I don't know. They, um, th this group happened to be pretty much in the traditional 18 to 22 age range. So they, they kind of saw um, social media come together as a force in society. Um, and so they felt very much more savvy than the elders about social media, but they also were really, in many cases, concerned about younger students, younger kids, their younger siblings, for example, who they thought had never not been surveilled, had never not had a public face because their baby pictures were online. I mean, you know, their whole lives were being tracked. And some of them were really concerned about that. You know, this is just really destructive for them. And how are they ever going to learn how to escape from this sort of this gaze that's always watching every move and the fact that everything they do could become, you know, a public act of some sort and could be misinterpreted. So that was an interesting concern. Um, and that was, they were sort of, many of them were like, we don't need to learn any of this stuff. We're okay, but those younger kids, they're, I'm really worried about them. And then some would say, no, I'm not worried about my kid sister. I'm worried about grandpa. <laughs> so. Is there a role for um, the arts, uh, or is there a role that the arts plays that's important in, in, in combating all of this? I certainly think so. Um, I hadn't really thought that much about it before, but when I think about understanding how the platforms we use every day work, you don't need to know about code. You don't need to know about um, what the company's economic situation is necessarily, you can intuit it if you use it as, as a creative person. You begin to pick up on what's going on here and you can, um, I could see using that in classrooms or in any learning situation where people are invited to, as you say, try to understand this system, this platform, this way of disseminating information by participating in it in a way that helps you figure out what's going on here. What are these metrics? What do they mean? How are they influencing people? How do I come up with a way of kind of um, reverse engineering a thing so that I can understand how it works and what's going on under the hood, what's going on in there? So when I was thinking generally, what do, you, what do students need to learn? I don't think they need to learn to code. I don't think they need to learn the kind of mathematical or scientific principles behind it, unless they want to. I mean, it would be fine. But what this, the impact of these systems is really social and cultural more than anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a big economic component to it. but. The way it's built out of code is much less of a has less of an impact than what happens in the world with these systems, and so I think the involving students in making things, seeing things in a creative way that are out there, interpreting things, those are all kind of arts and humanities based ways of seeing the world, uh, and so I think if we were to engage students more productively in understanding information the way it works now beyond 
the school library or the university library or the peer-reviewed research articles that their professors really want them to use all the time instead of other ways of knowing the world, um, then I think the arts and humanities could offer some really interesting ways to, to do that work of understanding and creating things to, um, to see how these systems actually operate on the world. It seems more accessible to me than, um, well, if you want to do this, you really have to have a course in statistics first, and then you have to learn this coding language. And then, you know, um, so there, there's something about STEM, which is very stacked. You know, you have to have this knowledge before you have that knowledge, and then you can't really get to where you are making something until you've acquired all of this both knowledge and this ability to un undertake the methods that are part of the deal. Whereas with the arts, it's a little more open. It's a little bit more um, accessible for more people coming from different backgrounds and directions, I think. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. I think it's just absolutely fascinating work. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Join me for the next episode when I speak with Memes to Movements author On Mina about the need for context creation online and how we've been making cat gifts for thousands of years. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.